Welcome to Because You Need to Know, recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Today in the studio, we have Dr. John Lewis and he is a consultant, speaker, and coach on the topics of knowledge management, learning, and leadership. He is a scholar-practitioner who has pioneered new business and learning models that can be found in his book, The Explanation Age, and also in his most recent book, Story Thinking, Transforming Organizations for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. This story thinking concept, can you tell me about this? Tell me what that means. Story thinking, sure, love to talk about it. Well, uh, the the uh, a research question that that I posed is actually the uh, beginning of chapter one in the book. Was uh, you know obviously the last couple of decades we've realized that uh, storytelling is such a key way to communicate knowledge uh, even throughout time. You know, sitting around campfires thousands of years ago, and we've introduced it back into corporations as a way to start to capture knowledge and tell stories and uh, it's moved obviously into the knowledge management field. Mm-hmm. My question was, if this is the way that's a sense-making pattern, because they've also discovered with uh, neuroscience when they hook wires to your brain that, that we're wired for stories, different patterns fire off in our brain when we talk in stories. If we're wired for stories and this sense-making pattern is how we should talk, then why isn't it for how we should work? Mm. So that was the question, because I'm looking at the industrial age models that we still use, still taught in MBA programs, whether it's Plan, Do, Check, Act, or Demaic from Six Sigma, some type of prescriptive steps you should do. So we, we try to follow these steps, and they only get us so far in the knowledge economy. And then we go over and we talk about how work is going using a sense-making pattern. And then we go back and try to work using some nonsense making pattern. So mm. uh, why don't we use this sense making pattern for study it and understand a little bit more about it and then compare it to, uh, as I have in the appendix of this book, 30 different common models that are known in business and so forth that uh, we should compare it to just to see where they break down, where they align. We can't follow it if we can't work this way and follow this sense making pattern as far as how we operate, not just how we talk. The sense making patterns, love it. The concept of making something for the user. So, in the yeah. typical organization, as you've talked about, the artifacts that would be not sense making would be memorandums, uh, policies, regulations, all this. Pieces. Pieces. Yeah. It would be better in this framework to have someone be the intermediary between that strange concept and be the storyteller to make it important, sensified or sense making for it. So you almost need like a Sherpa anywhere you go to be your knowledge Sherpa to translate. Yeah. And it would be nice if that was sort of built into how we operate. And what are the steps we follow? Well, you can go off and get certified in any number of patterns that they'll teach you. Here's, here's our pattern that you can get certified in. Do these three things or these six things. And then they break down into these hundred steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are we doing them? How does that map to a sense-making process? So that's what uh, I had to do is map them and start to understand how all the different patterns that are out there come together. Is so, the story thinking the major umbrella as you see it? I mean, uh, any organizational structure, that should be the, the major umbrella. Yes. 
Okay. It, and it is. And it, and we've, so we know that because we we've realized that's how we should talk. So all I've done is said, well, then why aren't we working that way? Oh, yeah. Why? And when, why? Yeah. And, and What's the, it, what was the answer? Uh, because we haven't, no one had asked that question. So, <laughs> so to, to make my point, since I just brought that up, um, it's all about asking the right question. So let me, let me ask you this. Okay. If you, I know you've heard uh, this and I want to see if you believe this. Do you believe the saying that knowledge is power? No, knowledge is, is a residual artifact. Um, and it's not until it's put to use that it gains any kind of power. Okay. We're on the same page because okay. if, if we, if we really believe that, then people would be knocking the door down to your, because you have access to people in the KM field who are managing this knowledge and they would be all over. That's not happening for a reason. The way I put it is this, the ability to know or to have access to knowledge is now measured by the network speed of your smartphone. Simply having knowledge is no longer the primary advantage. Mm -hmm. The primary advantage now comes from asking the right question. Okay. Mm. This means that knowledge is no longer the ultimate power, but questioning is power. Even Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. He was onto something. So what I look at is story thinking and questioning skills create the answers we call knowledge. So we have to have, we have to have both sides of that. There was a time when knowledge management was called knowledge and innovation management, because mm -hmm. then you start to see the other side of it. So how we think, how we come up with ideas and how we have continuous improvement. And then we yeah. keep track of that and we pass that along to other people, but then also that that information feeds back into the cycle. It's a cycle that looks much like story thinking. And when you, uh, even years ago in conferences, I would ask you, are you of the type that says the definition of knowledge management when we say that that includes and means innovation management, and then people would say, yeah, I think that incorporates, we don't really need to say knowledge and innovation management. And with the loss of that term, mm -hmm. being visual and part of uh, the description of the field, we lost out on the, uh, providing the total picture. Mm. So how does that total picture of the story thinking apply to business and or nonprofits? Well, I think um, as, it, as it pertains to business, it's interesting because uh, the, the subtitle of, of my book is basically looking at the fourth industrial revolution and preparing for that. If you've been keeping track and, and watching this uh, unfold, there's a book that came mm. out with that, uh, with that title, Fourth Industrial Revolution. The first industrial revolution was based on steam and mechanical production. The second revolution was based on electricity and assembly lines. The third revolution was based on computing and online workflow. And we see a lot of that now. But the fourth revolution, which isn't coming, it's here, is based on intelligence and digital connectivity. People will say, well, there's always going to be jobs because you could take the guy who was putting uh, shoes on a horse and just train him to uh, put a fender on a car as it comes down the factory line. And we've always been able to do that. What's different this time around, given that it's, it's based on intelligence and we have uh, AI and robotics capability that the, the guy that you could train to do a job in a day, those types of jobs you can't just train them for. The people, there may be jobs, but the thinking, the intelligence uh, that you're going to have to train people for, the types of jobs are all going to be more strategic and creative. You don't just train someone with that type of job. So my point of, the, of my book is, is looking at the fact that throughout time, what, this is a, a big event because throughout time, when you think about those kinds of jobs, innovation, creative, strategic work versus the labor, manual labor, you can train someone to, to do the jobs. So I call them the transformational versus transactional uh, type of work that we had 
throughout history, basically is 70% transactional labor, 30% transformational. Mm-hmm. You could think of it like blue collar versus white collar. How many people? Enlisted versus officers. How many people do you need? Or when you had bigger companies and you had, and it, it broke down into an R&D department versus operations, how many people do you need? So you'd have, basically, you'd say 30% of strategy, 70% of workers. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Not only is that, for the first time, ratio going to change, because there was always work that you could have more workers for, but now that transactional 70% is going to some type of AI robotics. Not only is it going to change, it may actually invert. That's the uh, the key for, for large organizations is to understand that, you know, successful organizations looking at this will need to do more than just adopt smarter tools. They will need to adopt smarter ways of thinking beyond current memorized prescriptive change models that they're using now. Everything you're talking about is making a more dynamic workforce that is a generalist to some degree. Is that how you would see it? Is that an attribute they would shop for when they're hiring? Yeah. And I, I like that that term because it's uh, kind of the opposite of what the uh, industrial age gave us. The industrial age, one of the things that we used as a lever to pull and uh, get more productivity in the industrial age was called division of labor. It was a strategy to say, okay, let's let's uh, have mm. more productivity through this strategy called division of labor. So we'd break every little job up so you could focus on your one little job and do it over and over and over. And what we've done through that process now is, is set up for us a perfect storm for AI and robotics to come in and say, oh, we can program that in a day to do that one little division of yeah, labor. Exactly. And so when, when you say, okay, a generalist, and this is the interesting thing about, I, I think, smaller companies or you know, nonprofits is that generally you have less people, so you have uh, less division of labor already. So people have to bounce around and do different things. They have to be strategic and bringing in change and they're right. running a change project while they pick up the phone and the next call they're, they're in a transactional event to someone calling about the current thing that's going on. That old concept of you're wearing 15 hats because yeah. you're doing everything. Right. So story thinking helps in that way as well, because then it helps you understand that that's what you're mm-hmm. doing. You don't get to say, I'm going to work 20 years in an ops department or 20 years in an R&D department, different kinds of thinking, risk taking and so forth versus, you know, know what the right question is versus knowing the answer. And Mm. how to balance and understand that's what you're doing and that what you're really doing in a full transformational cycle is using the full pathway of storytelling, using story thinking in its complete cycle. And what uh, when visually, when you see the cycle and cut it in half, which I call the half pipe, if you've seen um, snowboarding. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you've seen snowboarding, you know, they have something, a a sport called uh, it's a half pipe. It's just the bottom half of a cycle. And I call it half pipe thinking because... Um, the people that have figured out you know, when you try this and try this, this works sometimes, that doesn't work sometimes. The people up in the top half working through uh, ideation eventually come to a conclusion to go, you know what? Bottom line is let's do it this way. So then you pick it up and start there and you start teaching people. Can you remember this? Can you memorize this? I'm giving you the answer. We'll test you to see if you've memorized the answer and if you can put it into action. So now you're in the bottom half of the full cycle in that transactional piece. To your point about uh, nonprofits, mm. the people that generally have to bounce around back and forth between those types of uh, work and thinking, this uh, story thinking will help because they, they can see visually on a map, I call it, where they're spending their time. And it's not just, it's not just bounce yeah. around between um, division of time. 
but how they actually work together in uh, working through story thinking. Taking the story thinking individually and finding the integration points in the contextual relationship within an organization. Yes. And, and in fact, that's what organizations actually do. We just tell them they're doing something else. This is actually what this is actually what they do. So, so they finally get to say, oh, that's oh, I recognize. Yeah, yeah. Here's the map of where I'm navigating all day long. This is what I'm doing. So take me to the storytelling or the story thinking uh, application in general to the societal level. How does society engage this? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is, uh, as I started off saying, that basically I, I had this question and um, it was pretty clear that storytelling has some power in it. And I wanted to compare it to what we actually do. The appendix has uh, of the story thinking book has 30 different common models that a lot of people have, have heard of uh, used in business or mm -hmm. in education and communications and so forth. And some of them map very well to, you can, you can put their steps right over top of this map of the story and see why it sort of makes sense that what you've learned and what, why you're doing those steps. And the interesting thing that I found is there's two patterns that are, we're familiar with that don't align at all to the sense-making pattern of storytelling. And they're the patterns used by the institutions of policymaking and education. Hmm. Can you give me an example? First of all, most people aren't surprised because they go, something's not making sense in those industries or, or institutions. Well, I, I can attest to that because I was not the best student, I can tell well, you. Well, there's a reason why. I mean, so uh, if we want to, um, we'll just hit both of them real quickly. So in, education runs from a framework put together by uh, Bloom and also B.F. Skinner's primary frameworks of thinking. These people were not educators. They were evaluators. They wanted to make it easy for themselves to evaluate what they call, so their, their hierarchy uh, starts with memorization, and then they work up from there because it's harder for them to know if you got the right answer if you're an ideation. There's, it's more like, did you ask a good question, right? Because it has to be non-interpretive. Yes. I mean, you have to have something that's either either or, not, right. well, what does that mean? That's right. So it's more difficult for the evaluator as you go up through their hierarchy. And what their claim is that it's actually harder for, it's harder for students. It's not true. There's many children who are, it's much easier to operate in ideation than memorization. Mm. The problem is the person that they're calling a good student is the absolute wrong type of person we're going to need in the fourth industrial revolution who's good at memorizing. So education, I go through that in great detail and how uh, we, we can use story thinking with, with learning objectives for each area to replace Bloom's taxonomy. And then, uh, so for policymaking, I think we've all heard um, uh, the first step to create a new law is to submit a bill. You know, we sort of hear that in civic right. When you map that, you realize, okay, submit a bill. And you can see, I can't show you visually, but basically a chosen idea and a chosen improvement idea. Well, what, what had to have happened before you put a piece of paper in a box with a slit in it, okay, I'm submitting an idea. Well, there probably were other improvement ideas that that one was chosen over. Why was that? And before we realized we wanted an improvement idea, there must have been some analysis or root cause analysis or some research into what the real problem is, what went into that. And before we even did that, something kicked it off. There was some party that was dissatisfied with the current status quo. Who were they? And could we have predicted that they're not satisfied because a trade-off decision had already been made with the current policy? What was that? Uh, what I say is that policy making is mandatory. Mm -hmm. Politics is mm -hmm. optional. And when you understand the pure sense-making process of policy making, and we all do that, whether you say, okay, kids, 
from now on 10 o'clock's bedtime. That's a policy. It's based on some stuff that happened and looking into options mm-hmm. and saying, all right, this is the new mandated routine. And here's yeah. why. When we kind of make it magic and take it out away, away from citizens, when we say the first step belongs to someone in DC or somewhere else that doesn't belong mm-hmm. with us, it's all built into the way we even explain it. And it makes it seem like magic. And so you're removed from it. So when you really see that, no, um, this is the process, then you can hold them accountable for the transparency of that process. So I think that's the larger picture of uh, the implication of things and the research that came out of story thinking. So where do you see the future of knowledge management slash sense making slash story thinking? Well, um, you know, I go back to um, almost 20 years ago, a quote that came from uh, uh, something written by uh, Nancy Dixon like 20 years ago. She says, in organizations, knowledge is of less significance that are the processes needed to continuously revise and create knowledge. Mm. And this gets right back to what I was saying about calling it knowledge management versus knowledge and innovation. innovation yeah. We've, we've forgotten that other side, or you might hear this definition of, of knowledge management, that knowledge management is about getting the right information to the, at the right time to the right person so they can make the right decision. And we, we really just sort of spit that last part of the sentence out as if people are really good at making decisions, keeping track, <laughs> if we could just get them some information. And it's, it's focusing on the last part that we spit out from that definition that when you realize yeah. that's the problem right now. Yeah. That's what we don't have or keep track of or even uh, educate people on uh, education of a learning organization, their own biases, what goes into that. When are they learning and when are they just trying to confirm? Most people say they want to learn and they're just what they're up to is trying to confirm, not learn. And you show them the difference in an organization then the whole organization gets smarter. And we're going to have to because in the fourth industrial revolution, the, the organization is going to have to get smarter, not just to, not just buy smarter tools. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the burning platform coming at us. It's not going to be optional. The future isn't going to be optional. It's going to be mandatory that the, that the organization gets smarter. How do you hire for people that are just inquisitive people? Because you need inquisitive people yeah. that can have levels of investigation or synthesis or I wouldn't even say you really need the high-end skills of the making a finished product or high reasoning, but just inquisitive people, people that just want to investigate. That's just as much as a, of an important piece. It is. And, um, you know, a couple of years for several years now, when certain large consulting firms that will do surveys of top CEOs and they'll ask some sort of key thing they're looking for. And it generally is something related to creativity. They realize that's mm-hmm. what, that's what they need. Whether that actually translates into a hiring practice or a quiz or that they ask them, you know, I, I don't know, but that is yeah. where we need to go. And the other problem is, too, is that we use this word creativity that we haven't really looked into and to understand, you know, creativity by itself. You know, I could come in my, my hair green one day or something and, and, you know, people would say, oh, it's very creative. Like that's a word we apply to a situation that's much broader and takes much more than that. What innovation requires, it's, it's fine to have mm-hmm. a spark of creativity, but as you know, famous quotes say, it's, it's more perspiration than inspiration. Like, What does it really take to, to get innovation to happen beyond just a, a creative element? And what it takes, what I found that's it, in the book is that when, getting back to the point that there's two sides, there's a full cycle of the transformational ideas, but they ha- they can't just exist in their own world. Here's a very creative transformational idea. It has to eventually land in a transactional world. Mm. It eventually has to be 
based in something that is ergonomic or that it makes uh, makes money you, that's repeatable. So understanding both sides of that coin, rather than just teaching creativity, understanding the entire cycle is what it's going to take to find the right. It's that creative problem solving techniques, right? That's where you, you meet those two worlds. You can be creative, like you say, with the yeah. green hair. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Or whatever. To bring those and mold those to be joined at the hip as a conceptual operational capacity of creative problem solving or creative innovation yeah. or because innovation can happen without creativity yeah. just through problem sheer, solving. yeah. Oh, this exactly. Yeah, just this, obvious. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My left foot does not fit in my right shoe. Yeah. So yes. problem solving yeah. skills, so. right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's all extremely engaging. I would love to have you back, but thank you very much for being a guest today and sharing your experience. Great. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.